The Lord Jesus said of the supper, which, which he instituted, do this in remembrance of me. And it shouldn't need argument to make the point that Jesus should be remembered regularly, constantly indeed, by all his disciples. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So right from the start, the church has understood that we should celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis in remembrance and honor of the Lord Jesus. The pattern of the Lord's Supper, um, eating bread and drinking wine, reflects the pattern of things in the annual Passover feast. The Lord's Supper was instituted in the middle of a Passover feast. The Passover feast was instituted by God as a memorial of redemption from captivity in Egypt. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial of redemption from sin and death through the dying, followed by the rising of Jesus our Lord. And the symbolism of eating bread and drinking wine is a symbolism of being nourished. Food and drink nourish the, uh, the body when the body is faint through hunger. A Christian who doesn't see the need regularly to be part of the fellowship celebrating the Lord's Supper is missing something really vital. The Lord said, do it. Why then don't you do it? The question's inescapable. I know that the, and I expect you who are listening to me also know, that the Lord's Supper has been twisted in some people's understanding because of things that they believe about what the bread and the wine has turned into. I simply say they remain bread and wine, most certainly, but as we eat the bread and in our hearts say, Lord Jesus, I take you as the bread of my life, and as we drink the wine and say in our hearts, Lord Jesus, how could I ever thank you enough for shedding your blood for my salvation? We are nourished in inside. That is to say, we are strengthened, we are refreshed, we find new joy in our hearts, and we go on our way with a new lightness in our step. That's what sharing in the Lord's Supper ought to mean. Take the Lord's Supper a bit more seriously, I beg. And you will find that this is what it does for you. Beautiful, beautiful words, a beautiful, beautiful reminder from uh, now deceased Canadian pastor and theologian J.I. Packer. I just thought that was just such a, I almost just want to be like, all right, folks, thanks for coming. Well, I mean, like, wow, he just, he just really succinctly says what we do at the Lord's Supper, what communion is all about. And I'm just more and more convinced, and I know this because of conviction of my life, sometimes we, with the Lord's Supper especially, we sometimes just casually take it and we casually move on and we don't consider what it really means. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the Lord's Supper and what it means and why it is important. And most importantly, as we've been talking all month, why it's so important for us to see it in the context of our church family that we share in the Lord's Supper together. And as much as it is Jesus dying individually for you and giving you redemption, it is something that we as a church body share in that together. It is our family meal that we come to every single week. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, that every single week. My earliest distinct memory of communion is actually a really strange one. I will never, ever forget this. It's burned on my brain. I had just finished a Boy Scout camp out. And the troop leader decided that we were all going to go to his church for the day. And I honestly cannot remember what denomination he was part of. I feel like it was a Presbyterian church, but I may be incorrect. It doesn't really matter. 
All I remember is all of the little Boy Scouts of the troop, and we weren't little. I was probably older elementary, and the elements came down the way, and they were passing them. And I remember, this is what I first remember about this. I was so excited because the bread that day was not the unleavened holy saltine cracker, which actually really isn't a saltine because there's no salt on it. It was Hawaiian bread, folks. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I just took the grape juice. That is not the weirdest part of the story. The weird part of the story is afterwards. And I still to this day cannot figure out why in the world this was happening, but I knew something was just off and wrong. When I walked into the back room of the church afterwards, and there were several people back there noshing on Hawaiian bread and downing grape juice like they were, I was just like, something seems just a little off in this moment here. This doesn't seem like what communion should be. It certainly didn't fit the model of what communion is to be about as it is revealed in Scripture. In fact, this flippancy and the casual nature with which the Lord's Supper is sometimes observed is what the Apostle Paul is talking about and addressing in part. If you want to turn first this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is going to start out a little strange. You're going to be like, is he in the right spot? Are we reading the right thing here? We are. And I'll show you why that I'm bringing 1 Corinthians 11 up. Now, I was just talking with Colin a little bit before, and if you know anything about 1 and 2 Corinthians, this is how I would really just summarize 1 and 2 Corinthians. Letters written to a bunch of knuckleheads. That's it. We have people in the Corinthian church who just cannot get their act together. If you know anything about Corinth, Corinth is a largely pagan culture at that time. And because of that, they engage in a lot of revelry and a lot of weird practices. And what was happening is a lot of that was making its way into the church. And specifically, it was making its way into the time of observing the Lord's Supper in the church. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Oh, we ain't going to do that. That's what he starts off saying here as he does in verse 17 is where we're going to start. Now, just listen to this. Imagine you're reading this letter from Paul and you're like, ouch, this kind of hurts. In the following instructions, I cannot praise you. That's not the way you want to hear anybody address a letter to you, by the way. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Paul is essentially saying, here's the deal, church. Might as well not even be meeting together because it's not bringing anything good. And you're like, why? Why would you tell a church not to meet? Well, continue listening. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that those who have God's approval be recognized. When you meet together, this is what's happening in the Corinthian church, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. Now you'll remember two weeks ago we talked about in Acts 2, in the earliest parts and formation of the church, what they would do is they wouldn't do like we do where we show up and we have, they they probably sang and stuff, but when they had the Lord's Supper, it was not just one moment in a service where they passed a cracker and some grape juice. They had a meal. They had a meal every time they got together. It was called an agape feast or a love feast. And at the end of this, it would culminate in the Lord's Supper and the taking and the observing of communion or the Lord's Supper. And so what was happening in the Corinthian church evidently is you had classism going on. There were rich people who, it, it basically you look like this, they were having a big potluck dinner every, every time they got together. And you're like, ooh, I want more of that. I, I want that to happen again. They were on a potluck dinner, and the rich people were bringing their food. Instead of waiting on the people who were not as well off, and by the way, the poor people who would come to church and they would observe in this agape feast, that was probably the best meal they were getting that week. They didn't have much to bring, and what was happening is, if you can imagine, is it'd be like, we showed up for a potluck dinner today, and then I looked around in the congregation, and I was like, why are we missing like half of our people today? It's because all those knuckleheads would be back in the back lawn eating the food while we're in here talking about it. We're getting ready to observe the Lord's Supper. That's what's happening in the Corinthian church. That's why Paul is a little bit miffed. That's why he's a little bit upset when he's writing this letter to them. You're eating your own meal without sharing with the others. You brought those wonderful little sausages that are coated in barbecue sauce and you're out there eating all of them so nobody else gets them. How rude of you. And so as a result, some people are going hungry while, listen to this, this is what was really happening in the Corinthian church, while others are getting drunk. 
Could you imagine that, observing the Lord's Supper, and if we did it with wine, people were so just consumed by eating and drinking that they would eat up all the little beanie weenies with barbecue sauce, and they would drink all kinds of wine to the point that they would get literally drunk. You'd be like, what? This was wackadoo. Yep, Corinthian church was wackadoo, folks. He says, others are getting drunk. What? Like, don't you have your own homes for eating and for drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say to you? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. It's like a, it's like a dad just <clears throat> right on those kids. And he says this. This is why he is so incensed. This is what we will be talking about this morning, what frames everything we're talking about this morning. For I pass on to you what I received directly from the Lord himself, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with blood, with my blood, he says. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, can I just stop there for a minute? Because I think many times people misinterpret this verse. I've heard this a lot. And gee, you know, when I, I don't know if I can take the Lord's Supper today because I've just done some pretty rotten and awful things in my life. I mean, have you, have you gotten drunk at communion before? I don't think so, all right? So they had. Guys, the point of the Lord's Supper and Communion is not to drive sinners away. It's to call sinners to an opportunity to receive grace from God. So we don't come, the point of the Lord's Supper is not for us to come and just aw shucks and look at our feet and feel really bad about ourselves. We should. We should check our motives. We should check our attitudes. We're going to talk a little bit later about checking to see if our relationships are right with people. And if they're not, we better fix that either before and certainly after we observe the Lord's Supper. But the point of it is that we are supposed to be there to remember what the Lord has done. But Paul says you better make sure that you are not doing it in a way that is just or you drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Now, guys, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper at one time in the, in the church's history occupied the uppermost parts of most of the minds of, of Christians. They thought about it. They practiced it. It was a second, it's like second nature to people. They just, they did it and they put so much meaning into it, but it seems that anymore for many people, it's just something that's assumed. We talked this morning in Bible study, we use the word ritual. Rituals are not necessarily bad until they become a rut. And we just do things to do things because. And for many things in the life of the church, it's just assumed. It's just second nature. It's just routine. We don't consider it much anymore what the Lord's Supper really is. And for some people, they don't even consider it to be much of anything. It's one more thing or just a thing. You know what? Like this Lord's Supper thing, I do it. I mean, it's a, it's a good like little cracker and juice thing right in the middle of the service, but like, what does it really mean? What should I really gain from the Lord's Supper? You should be gaining a whole lot from the Lord's Supper, and possibly, maybe you're missing it. Just one more thing that I do every week. his disciples in on the last evening that he spent with them. If you have your Bible still open, hope you do. Matthew chapter 26. Some of us have already read this this morning, but we're going to read it again because this morning is all about not forgetting. It's all about remembering what the Lord has instructed us to do and what he has done for us. 
Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? And so he said, as you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. Dan asked me this morning and nudged me in the middle of Sunday school. He goes, have you ever tried that before? I was like, I haven't, but I should, shouldn't. I just walk up to somebody's house and be like, you know, I'm a preacher at New Heights and uh, I just feel it's time for a meal, so I'm coming in. I don't think that'll work out really well to you, right? They'd be like, Bucko, get out of here, all right? Get, get, all right? But Jesus has this power. It's my time has come. I've got something really special planned here. My disciples are going to eat at your house. And so the disciples did as Jesus told them. That's always a good practice, by the way. If Jesus tells you to do something, do it. And they prepared the Passover meal there at that house. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, this is a real buzzkill, by the way. You're getting ready to celebrate this Passover meal, which wasn't like always, it wasn't completely like a somber meal, like we're sitting here and we're like remembering Passover. It was a celebration. There were actually several parts of the Passover meal. There were actually four main parts. And the first part always started with a, a, a prayer of blessing and kind of a hallelujah for what God had done. And listen to what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Well, jeesh, way to just completely bring down the mood in the room, Jesus. Greatly distressed, each one of them asked in turn, am I, am I the one, Lord? Am I, am I going to betray you? Surely not. He replied, uh, replied, one of you who has eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scripture has declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Ooh, burn. That's a tough line, by the way. Now Judas, the one who would betray him, and Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, asked Rabbi, like, isn't this the height of deceit, by the way? Judas has already had it in his heart. He has already spun the wheels into motion to betray Jesus. And what does he have the gall to come and say to Jesus? Oh, oh Rabbi, surely not me. Am I, am, am I the one who will betray you? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Yeah, buddy, you know it. And so Jesus took... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, and Jesus told them, you have said it. As they were eating, Jesus and bread, and he blessed it, then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, take this, eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many, not just you few, not just the elect, you know, 11 or 12 that are there, of the many, of the world. Mark my words, Jesus says, I will not drink wine until, uh, again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, I wasn't really going to include this, but I just think this is so interesting that we probably don't understand the nature of what's happening at a Passover meal. And for thousands of years, they have celebrated this Passover meal. And what was standard for the Passover meal is that there were four cups of wine at a Passover meal that they would drink at certain parts of the meal. Now, when we jump into the story here, not only in, in Matthew, but this story is found in all of the Gospels of this upper room of this Last Supper. Jesus, what would usually happen is they would have the first cup of wine. And like I said, it was kind of a hallelujah. It was a praise. It was a praise of blessing. There was a second cup of wine that would be taken. And after that second cup of wine is when we would have this meal that they're observing here in Matthew 26. They would eat a meal. And then a third cup of wine would come out after they finished the meal, and it was called, interestingly enough, the cup of redemption. And the cup that we find here, we believe, and scholars believe, is that cup of redemption, that third cup. And then when you see down here in verse 30 when it says they sing a hymn, the whole Passover meal was ended with a hymn and a time of blessing and a time of hallelujah and a taking of a fourth cup, and then the Passover meal was done. So in verse 30, when they're going to the Mount of Olives, they're singing a hymn, somewhere in there, a fourth cup is taken. But we are in the point between the second cup and the third cup and having a meal and that third cup of wine is called the cup of redemption. Now what's very interesting, and this is very, very important, is that Jesus in his ministry committed only two 
ordinances, or sometimes they're called sacraments for the church. Ordinances are nothing more than something that is prescribed by the Christ and is practiced widely in the church. Only two things did Jesus say, this you must do. This I am giving to you as a mark and as a reminder of the things that I have done for you. One of those things is what? Communion, which we're talking about this morning. And the other one is what? Baptism. Those are the only two things that Jesus gives to the church, prescribes to the church and say, you do these things. These are very important things. Do not forget these things. And to understand communion in the Lord's Supper, we don't just start here in Matthew 26. Actually, what you would have to do is you would have to go back about 3,400 years before that to the time of Moses in 1400 B.C., Somebody, I think Brian asked this morning, when was, the, when was communion instituted? Well, technically and fully here in the Gospels, but it was pointed at 3,000 plus years before that. You have to go back to the time of Moses, to the time of captivity of the nation of Israel in Egypt, and it's capped by the death of the firstborn, the Israelites being passed over and the exodus from Egypt. Now, that's a really compressed timeline, by the way. There's a lot more going on in there. But that's really what they're celebrating here, and it's what every Jewish person celebrated for thousands of years after the Exodus and after the first Passover. This moment here, and you'll notice it says it starting there at verse 17, it was celebrated within the context of a feast or a festival known as the Feast or Festival of Unleavened Bread. And it included what it was called the Passover meal. This meal is exactly what Jesus is celebrating with his disciples here in Matthew 26. It's found in Mark 14. It's found in Luke 22. It's alluded to very heavily in Jesus' upper room discourse in John 13 through 17. All of that section of John 13 through 17 is in that upper room, and all of it is taking in context in the place of what we're talking about here. And what Jesus does here in Matthew 26 and what he sets up for his disciples, what he sets up for future disciples is the basis of fellowship, and we've talked about that in the previous weeks, between us and God, and this is very important, and between you and I and others. Again, this is not an isolated individual. I just put my head down and I'm in my own little world. This is our family meal that we share in and we celebrate in together and what Christ has done for us, how he has redeemed us. We can now sit down to a meal with Jesus and we can enjoy one another's company as a family because of what Christ has done for us in sacrificing for us. Guys, we are to remember the Lord every time we are together. I'm going to say that again. We, if you ever come to a worship service and you have not met the Lord, you have not truly worshipped. We are to remember the Lord every single time we are together, not just on a Sunday morning and everything that we do in the life of a family and a church. We are to remember the Lord and the greatest demonstration, the central focus and point of that, guys, is the Lord's Supper. As often as we remember Jesus, we should celebrate Jesus. Guys, communion is important because it's a command to remember. Jesus wants us to remember every time that we taste the bread and that we take of the cup and even we sit at tables in our own homes that He is the one who provides all that we need. We remember that every single time that we are together. And this morning what I want to do in breaking this down is I want to talk to you about one why and two what's. Why is it important that we remember what the Lord has done for us? What is of utmost importance for us to remember? And then what is the danger of us forgetting what God has done for us? One why, two what's. And so let's turn our attention to this why. Why is it important to remember what we have done and remember especially in the context of the Lord's Supper? Guys, it's important to remember because a great memory, it, it has a way of reminding us of our story, right? If you just think for a moment, you just try to think back on your life and you try to think of memories, it begins to put a picture together. It begins to put a story together for you. 
where you came from, the crucial and formative events in your life. Guys, it's important to let you know where you find yourself in your story and in God's story, what makes up your story. In short, guys, it helps you to remember. To remember what is most important. And therein lies the problem, though, doesn't it, guys? We humans have a memory problem, don't we? Now, some of us like literally have memory problems. We're like, I don't know what you just told me five minutes ago. I don't remember what I'm even wearing today. We have memory problems. More critically, we Christians have a hard time remembering. We have a tendency to forget. I just brought this up at Bible study on Thursday. It's in the term and in the phrase, we have what I call spiritual amnesia. I just can't remember. I forgot. What's important? The whole story, guys, by the way, of Israel in the Old Testament is exhibit A for spiritual amnesia, right? Really, their, their waywardness and their wandering in the wilderness can largely be boiled down to what? They forgot over and over and over again. And sometimes, comically enough, they forget something that just happened like the week before. And their, their what happened the week before wasn't like just a little itty-bitty thing. It was a major God moment. And they're like, yeah, I just don't really remember that. Like, if they forget those major milestones, guys, we are going to have memory problems too. When the book of Exodus opens, we find a people who seem to have forgotten God. But they are crying out to a God who had not forgotten about them. If we turn and you look at Exodus chapter 2, in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, it says this, Years passed. And the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. And God heard their groaning. And listen to this. This is such a significant word. And he what? He remembered. And it's not that God forgot. Like, God doesn't have memory problems. But listen what this remembering means. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he looked down on the people of Israel. I love this line. And he knew it was time to act. He goes, it's it. Right now, I'm stepping into this situation. Guys, when we forget who God is and what God has done, we fail to remember who we are. And guys, that is never, ever a good recipe. But, you know, we look at Israel and we're like, look at these knuckleheads, 40 years in a desert going round and round and around. Not much has changed, has it? Like, we don't have sand to walk around in, but most of our lives and many of our lives far too often are walking around and around and around. We said this on, have you ever had this moment you're watching a movie and people are like traveling through a jungle or a desert and they're walking and walking and they're laboring and they get back and they look and they go, haven't we been here before? Is there a more defeating moment than that? Have you ever had that moment in your life where you've just been walking and wandering round and round and you look at your spouse or you look at your family around you and you're like, haven't we been here before? And they're like, Guys, that's all of our lives. We've all been there before. Guys, remembering is difficult in our hustle-bustle lives. But if, if we hope to live faithful and fruitful lives in and for Jesus, guys, we cannot afford to forget. We just can't. We have to remember. Remembering God's story and who we are is a fundamental Christian practice. So fundamental, in fact, guys, that it's baked into one of the foundational pillars of the church. Guys, the Lord's Supper should be the central part of our story. It should be the central part of what we do when we get together. Guys, it's something that we cannot do without. As humans, we are story-based. We live in and we embody all kinds of stories and narratives in our lives. And frankly, most of the stories and narratives that we live into are false. They're fake. They're empty. They're hollow. And when we forget God's story, we inevitably start living in another story, in another world. And these stories rarely reinforce the biblical narrative, but rather than being recast where we put our hope. And so, guys, here's the deal. 
practicing into God's story. This right here, it's a little thing that many of us carry around with us, that Bible right there, that is God's story. We find ourselves in that story, but it's first and foremost God's in that story. God's Word is the way that He ingrains into us a story into the deepest fibers of our being. After all, guys, if you, if you don't know the story, you can't live into the story. The earliest parts of the Old Testament call us to remember. Remember, remember, remember. Deuteronomy chapter 6 has this to say about this concept of, of remembering. Don't forget, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the commands that I'm giving to you, Moses says to the people. And listen to this word right here. Repeat them again and again and again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. First Chronicles chapter 16 says something very similar, but it's even more bold. Remember. Remember the wonders that God has performed, His miracles and the rulings He has forgiven. Guys, so much of the Bible is do not forget. Why? Because guys, when we remember rightly, we are able to get our hope squared properly. Our hope in this life is in a lot of other things many times. We need to get our hope squared properly where it needs to be, and that needs to be on God. Remembering is not nostalgia, it's not memories as much as it is a right orientation of our heart to where it needs to be. When our hearts and our minds are dwelling in His story, in His provinces, in His salvation, we are living in a story of hope, which really, hope, guys, is just future remembering. Looking at the past and how God has constantly shown up in your life and how He has consistently acted in your life and applying it to your future hopes and your future actions. That's what hope really is. I remember what you did, God, right here. And so I'm going to believe, God, that you're going to do something similar over here. When you are feeling, when we are feeling hopeless, something like the Lord's Supper, which causes us to remember and not forget, helps us to consider how God has responded in the most hopeless situations of our life and how he might act in the future. Now, I ran across this information about brain study, which I know really excites a lot of you. You're like, yay, I really want to hear about brain study. This is, listen to this. One study of the power of the brain to recall and to remember things says this. Research has demonstrated that even memories which have not been rehearsed or remembered are remarkably stable in long-term memory. So guys, by association, when you recall information in your life, things that you relearn and you apply those things, you expand the storage capacity of your brain. So the more it would, it would hold that the more that you use something, the more that you practice it, and the more that you hear it and you apply it, it stands to reason that it occupies a greater part of your thinking process. Guys, isn't this a major point for the celebration of the Lord's Supper on a consistent, frequent basis? Which brings me to a question that I hear asked often, debated on, and discussed at length. Why do you guys at New Heights, and why do churches like you take communion every single week? Doesn't that get kind of boring? Doesn't that kind of ruin the significance and the meaning of communion? No. Like maybe you've wondered, and if you've even wondered a shred of that sometimes, as I just said, and I made the case, we are a forgetful people. And if one of the main purposes of the Lord's Supper is giving us time to reflect and to remember, isn't it at least a possibility, if not a high probability, that we should remember best and we do remember best by reflecting on it frequently, often? I'm not here this morning to go in a big tangent about how often people should be taking communion, all right? 
But I'm just here to make the case that, boy, it better be pretty frequent in your life or you're going to have a remembering problem. Because we've already talked about the early believers establishing a pattern where they met daily, they met frequently to break bread, and it's highly likely they also partook of the Lord's Supper at the same time. Go check out Acts 20, verse 7. The early church saw that every time they gathered around a table to eat and to drink, it was a chance to recognize Jesus and thank God for all that he has done. I don't know why anybody would not want to take every last opportunity and advantage they could to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Let me not forget this. Let me always remember. That's what we should be doing as the church. That's why it's important that we recognize that as the church. And so, guys, if that's the why, what's the next thing? What, what are we supposed to remember? Guys, to put it simply, the things that we have always been called to remember, the same timeless, eternal, divine principles that glorify and lift up God. And again, that's where something like the Lord's Supper is so invaluable to our recollections. To continually remind us of His sacrifice for our redemptions. And so the what? What is so important? What is of utmost? remember that we are not our own. The moment that you gave your life to Christ, it was never your life anymore. Done. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, really Paul states this well, this concept of not being our own. Next slide, Brenna. Boom. Maybe. Yes. On the first day, oh no, keep going. 1 Corinthians. Keep going. There you go. You do not belong to yourself, Paul says, for God bought you with a high price. Guys, we have been bought at a price, a very costly price. And guys, that is, that's worth remembering, isn't it? Not just on a Sunday, it's worth remembering every single day, isn't it? That you are not your own. Christ bought you with a very, very high price. Commit that to memory. Never, ever forget that. Guys, this is, this is one of the most important things that we are to remember. We are to remember who we are, but more importantly, we are to remember whose we are. So that we, when life, when we are feeling alone and we're feeling betrayed and we're feeling unable to provide, we won't be double-minded and we won't lose hope and we won't lose our sense of direction, guys. None of the circumstances that we face in life will ever alter our position in Christ if we are truly children of God. You are always Christ. You always belong to Him. He has died for you and given His life for you. Nothing changes no matter what you experience in this life. Guys, we remember those things that are most important and most treasured to us, don't we? So how in the world do you keep something that is precious to you? I think that you keep things that are precious to you by guarding them, by cherishing them. You make an effort to put them somewhere that you won't forget them. Maybe you commit it to memory, not commit it to become a memory, but practice it, rehearse it, live into it. That's why you would find, and you can look this up later, go to Revelation when he talks and he starts writing to the seven churches. And every one of the churches that I went through this week and looked, except for one, he has a line that constantly says this, to either remember or to repent or to turn around or you will risk losing your way permanently. Guys, it is so insanely important that we remember who we are. Do, do we remember? Do we remember who we are? Do we always remember why we are here? Why in the world, I still do not get this, all these years later, why people show up on a Sunday morning to listen to this knucklehead up here or any knucklehead that gets on a stage talk? No other place do you find that in society. That's not why we are here. Why are we here we are here for a moment like the Lord's Supper to bring us together. And guys, when we take the Lord's Supper together, what are we doing really in that? In one sense, we are looking backwards, aren't we? We're looking into the past. That's what Jesus does here in this Passover meal, this last supper. He says what? 
Do this in remembrance of me. Recall the memory. Keep going back to that over and over again, he says. It's very interesting, isn't it, though, by the way, that Jesus never says, build a memento for me in the place where I raised from the dead. He didn't say that. He never said, build a monument to me where I preach the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't do that, did he? Build a memorial in that little stable where I was born as a baby in the middle of animals and feed troughs. Didn't say that, did he? He said, the only thing that I want you to raise up as a marker or as a remembrance or a memorial is this meal. Take the bread. Take the cup. And when you do that, remember what I have done for you. In the Lord's Supper, guys, Jesus is essentially saying to us, and he wants us to be reminded of, let these elements be a perpetual reminder of my sacrifice for your sins on the cross. For I offer a greater deliverance than the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. I offer deliverance from the slavery to sin and death. Guys, Jesus doesn't change the meaning of Passover. What Jesus does is he expands on it and he fulfills the meaning of Passover. Everything he says in that meal is now pointing to me. I make the meaning of Passover. Guys, Passover was always celebrated in the life of Israel to remind them of deliverance from Egypt, the central act of redemption in the Old Testament in the life of Israel. What Jesus does here in the Gospels and what it's referred to so many times is that Jesus is now providing a new center of redemption to be remembered by a new ceremonial meal. Guys, everything eaten at Passover had very symbolic meaning. But Jesus in this moment doesn't give the normal explanation and meaning for each of the foods and each of the elements of this Passover meal. He reinterprets all of it and he finds the meaning in himself. The focus was no longer on the suffering of Israel and Egypt, but it was on the sin-bearing suffering of Jesus on their behalf, on our behalf, on the world's behalf. And with that truth, guys, we come to understand that it's not necessarily about the bread and it's not about the cup and what those things mean, what those elements are, whether they're symbolic and whether they're real. It's, not, it's about the body and it's about the blood of Jesus. It's not about the ritual. It's not about the method. It's about a person to worship and a relationship with a person to have. It's about listening to Jesus and doing what he says. Guys, communion is not an obligation. Communion is absolutely a celebration. A yes moment that we get to stand into every single week. Guys, communion celebrates the gospel that Jesus was broken for us so that he could fix us eternally. Guys, the bread and cup are not just symbols. They are a powerful picture to partake of, to enter into as we see the Lord's table as the new Passover. Eat this means that eating, guys, is, is vital for everyone, right? Without food and drink, we cannot live on a cosmic level, a much more important level, guys. Without Jesus, we perish. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. And so we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking into the past, but when we take the Lord's Supper, we're also doing what? We're looking into the present, right where we stand, right where we sit. This last supper that Jesus has with his disciples, it's the last real observance by Jesus with his disciples of the Passover. It's the last supper of its kind that Jesus will celebrate. It becomes the first observance of the Lord's Supper, a, a new covenant between God and his people. In this moment here in Matthew 26 that we read, and in all of the Gospels, a central feature of the Gospel, the Last Supper. Can you see what happens here, by the way? The Last Supper and the Lord's Supper mingle together in such a beautiful way. Jesus says, this is the Last Supper that you guys will ever eat this way as a remembrance of the Passover. And this is the first supper, the Lord's Supper, that you will remember what I am getting ready to do for you. And they both come together in this beautiful picture. What does he say again? Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. This is Paul's recollection in 1 Corinthians 11. That's how he says it. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it, guys. Our relationship with God and to God always needs to be based in the present moment, in the present tense. 
Guys, too many of us are looking backwards and we're trying to recapture something in our lives that we had the whole time. We're missing, guys. We're missing in that moment. Whenever we're looking in the past and we just stay stuck in the past, we're missing what God has for us in the moment. Pastor Skip Heitzig says, all of your experiences of the past should never be a hitching post, but it should only be a guidepost to point you forward. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking into the past, we're looking into the present, and if you can be with me on this one, it's also what? We're looking into the future. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we get a glimpse of the future. Guys, communion should cause us to look ahead. What does he say again in 1 Corinthians 11? Every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying when he took these elements with the disciples, he held up a cup and he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine anymore until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. In essence, he's saying, I am coming back. You can be sure of that. And so, guys, when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus came, but that he is coming again. There is a future element, certainly a future element, to the Lord's Supper. It's what in Revelation 19, verse 9, is referenced and referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is what it sounds like. Revelation 19, 9. And the angel said to me, this is John writing, angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. I call this, guys, this moment in the Gospels, I call it a trifecta moment. You have the Passover, you have the institution of the Lord's Supper, and you have it pointing together and having us look to the future, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. All three of those things are in focus in the Gospels as Jesus does this. Guys, what, as we begin to kind of wind this down and we're pointing towards taking the Lord's Supper, what is the Lord's Supper really all about? What should we remember every time that we take this? Firstly, communion is really about our relationship with each other and our relationship with Christ. Both are which what the Corinthian church was having a hard time doing. They were guilty of ignoring what Christ was so intent to instill to his followers in his ministry. Guys, communion is about proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It includes being a reflection of Jesus' suffering and sacrifice, a celebration of his victory over sin and death, and the anticipation of Jesus' return. And communion also, guys, is about examining ourselves. It's not that we get into like an introspective moment, like, oh, I just want to like sit here and think about... Like, you're not thinking about yourself. You're examining yourself. You're seeing what may be wrong in your life, the actions and attitudes that may be wrong in your life, and you're confessing those things, and so your hearts will get right with and so we've done the why, we've done the what, and we're going to wrap up right now with the last what. What are we so in danger of forgetting when we don't remember properly? Guys, we are, we are in danger, first and foremost, of failing to remember the good grace of God in every part of our past and every part of our present life. We're in danger of not applying the good grace of God to our present life. Guys, grace wasn't and grace isn't just a one-time event whereby we're given a certain amount of grace and you need to budget that out until you die. That's not what grace is. Grace is free-flowing. Guys, we need grace and we often need a lot of it every single day that we live and breathe in this life. Amen? I know that I do. Guys, we are in danger as well, too, of failing to prepare for a grace-filled eternity. See, grace doesn't stop here. Grace will go on and on and on. And uh, do you get the picture? Never stopping. And all of this, guys, what we're really in danger of forgetting, what the Lord's Supper shouts and proclaims every time that we take it, that, guys, when we come to the Lord's Supper, that is the place where we all find grace. 
Because the Lord's Supper, this Lord's Supper is itself a proclamation. It is the greatest proclamation. The Lord's Supper is a sermon unto itself. The bread and the cup are visual aids to help us grasp and focus on the meat of the message, guys. We need saving. Here's the great news. You can be saved. If you, somebody has said it this way, if you are a you, then he's talking to you. It sort of sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? I want, just for a moment here, I have to read this scripture. John chapter 6, in one of the most odd moments of Jesus' ministry, when many people will desert him as his disciples, in John 6, 48, he says this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. And at that point, people said, whoa, this guy has completely lost it. Guys, he didn't lose it. He lost it for you and for me. Jesus saved a seat for you at the table, and he is simply saying in the Lord's Supper, come, sit down, dine with me. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation that also that suffering and death are not the end. The Lord's Supper is also a reminder that we are a community of the forgiven. By grace, we have all been saved. It is a gift so that none of us can boast. Tim Keller says it this way, the Lord's Supper is not for perfect people. The Lord's Supper forces us to keep our inner experience linked with our outward behavior. It demands that we ask, am I truly living a life of gratitude and obeying God as, if I, would be, uh, as I would be if I really believed that He saved me at the infinite cost of His only Son? Am I loving others sacrificially as I would be if I really believed that I was saved by sacrificial love? In this morning with the words of John Calvin, and John Calvin's big gigantic work that he wrote called Institutes, in one of the sections of the Institute, there is a section called his, his Treatise on the Lord's Supper, and he wrote about what he called a wonderful exchange, and he said this, this is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless kindness he has made with us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness He has strengthened us by His power. That receiving our poverty unto Himself, He has transformed His wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon Himself, which oppressed us, that He has clothed us with His righteousness. This, my friends, is what we remember.